You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. That's where you're going to be. And uh, should we give Dan like a round of applause for, for those names? I mean, that was, that was good, good reading right there. <laughs> Matthew chapter 1. And so, uh, Merry Christmas to you. And uh, y'all know we've got a big week that we're looking forward to. And I know that you've probably been waiting all year for Christmas. So you could get to the point where you would hear a sermon kind of on the Christmas story through a genealogy of all places, right? I know you've been waiting for that. And so it's amazing that uh, it's like, uh, you know, somebody started reading out of a phone book and that just happened to make its way into the Bible. It's, it's crazy how this works. And so... I, I'm just going to speak for most of us, I think, when, when you come to a genealogy, here's what I think happens. We revert to one of two things, either skipping or skimming, don't we? I mean, if you're like me, when you come to the Bible, it's really tempting to start reading really fast when you come to a list of names. And so uh, now I, I want to just pause and say this as we approach a passage like Matthew 1, 1 through 17, these 17 verses that we approach it with, with an assumption that the Bible gives us to approach it with. And the assumption could be summarized in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, that all scripture is God-breathed and useful. Now that's pretty shocking when you come to a genealogy, isn't it? That this list of names is like God-breathed, like God put this list of names here, and that that list of names, this list of names, is promised by God to be useful for us. Then it goes on to list what it's useful for for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training so that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now that even applies to a list of names. That even applies to genealogies. So we're approaching it this morning with this assumption that if we get in the middle of this passage, we start reading and we pray and ask God to to open up what he has here for us and we start digging down into this passage that underneath these words, we can find gospel gold. Like this sort of gold that would lift up the name of Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, all that God has done for us through Jesus, that that's all in this passage, these 17 verses, this list of names here, that we should approach it expecting that. So, so that's how I'm expecting God to kind of work this morning. That's what I'm hoping for. And I hope that's what you're hoping for. Okay, so Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Here's what I want to do today. In light of there being some gospel gold in here, I want to just allow it to teach us, and really God to teach us from it, four things. So so four things that God wants us to learn from this this list of names. These 17 verses with a bunch of names in it. Four things. I'm just going to run through these with you. Here's the first one. The first thing that God, I think, would have us learn from, from this list of names goes like this. That this genealogy... It shows us that Jesus is the center of history. That that Jesus lies right in the middle of this thing. So in other words, this genealogy is showing us something about Jesus and his relationship to history. So let me just kind of work this from four different angles, or three three different angles. Here's the first one. Um, This genealogy would show us first that Jesus is historical. That like Jesus was actually born. Like he was actually born as, as a little baby. He he was born into a family, into a real place, into a real culture. Like Jesus is like an historical person. Like he actually existed. This is the first thing we could just see from this genealogy. That that the God that we worship, Jesus, he's real. 
He's, he's not somebody that, that was just made up once upon a time. He is a real human being that existed at a real time, in a real place. And, and I think that, that one of the most amazing things about Christmas, when you just start considering um, the impact of this one historical person, Jesus, is that there are millions of people this week who are going to worship Jesus and celebrate the coming of Jesus to earth. Millions. When you think about the pond of humanity, there has never been a pebble, a person dropped into that pond who has created so great a ripple, right? This is the person who we divide our time by. Like this is the person we kind of calibrate the way we reference time around. When you think about 2,000 years later, there is no more influential person that has ever lived. Shaping today, his life, his works, his words, today shaping our planet and people that exist on it. No other person compares to Jesus in that sort of a way. We're talking about a person that has had significant influence on our planet, this historical person of Jesus. So, so the first thing we learned is that he's historical, that he's a real person that has had real influence on our planet. But, but here's, here's the next part of that. Not just that he's historical, but that Jesus is at the center of God's work in history. That when you think about history, God's story, his story, that Jesus is at the center of all that God is doing. So let me just kind of trace this throughout the Bible for you. And we talk about this a lot around here, that when you're thinking about the Bible, it's important that you see it from an overarching perspective, that you're seeing the storyline of the Bible. So when you get to the Old Testament, here's how the storyline starts. With God creating God creates everything, uh, the world, prepares it for human beings, creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the midst of a garden, and everything they need for life is there. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God. They rebelled against God and were kicked out of the garden. But in Genesis 3.15, we have our first kind of overarching storyline of the Bible is set up in Genesis 3.15, this first gospel, where, where God gives us a glimpse of this coming Redeemer who will set the world aright. Now, when you're thinking about the Old Testament, here is, I think, the best way for you to think about it, is that the rest of the Old Testament is a clarification of what God meant in Genesis 3.15. It's, it's all foreshadowing and predictions and pronouncements of who this coming Redeemer would be. So, so this is what the Old Testament is about. It's about predicting and it's about foreshadowing that the coming of this Redeemer. And so then you get to the New Testament and the first line of the New Testament, I just want you to see this. The first line of the New Testament goes like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The, the book of the, it, it's, it's showing us that this whole thing that the Old Testament was leading up to, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That the center of God's redemptive work of him restoring and rescuing and, and reclaiming what was lost in Genesis 3 when, when Adam and Eve sinned, the center of that redemptive work is Jesus Christ. That the definitive work of God in this world is him sending his son, Jesus, to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life in place of your very imperfect life, to die on the cross for your sin, buried in a tomb, rose from the dead on the third day, that that is the centerpiece of God's redemptive work in this world, in history. And the centerpiece of that work of God is Jesus Christ. 
That this is what Matthew is showing us, that, that Jesus is at the center of God's redemptive work in history. But, but there's one more thing that we might could point out in just thinking about Jesus' relationship to history here, is that Jesus isn't going away. So although the work of God and the centerpiece of God's work for us was in Jesus on a cross, the, the work of God didn't stop there. If you remember kind of moving forward in the Gospels, that uh, when Jesus was risen from the dead, he spent a few days with his disciples and then he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, where, where he sits now ruling and governing the world. Okay, so, so Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is alive. And that alive Jesus is today reigning and ruling. And this is why Philippians chapter 2 verses 9, 10, and 11 would say something like this. After his humility of taking on flesh, dying on a cross, it says that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Like it's going to be impossible for men and women to avoid Jesus forever. So there's a coming day when every knee will bow before Jesus and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That that day's coming for all of us. In other words, Jesus isn't going away. Jesus is reigning and ruling over the universe right now. He, he doesn't disappear. Now, I, I want to just read this quote from you from a guy named Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a... Uh, he was from uh, uh, Britain, from England, and he was a journalist back in the 1970s. He was saved as an adult. And I just want to allow you to hear from really the, the words of a wordsmith, as he pens these words, of just the massive person of Jesus Christ in history. So I, I want you to read this. And, and if you've been around here for long, every time we talk about Jesus, I try to work this in in some way, shape, or form, because I love what he has to say here. Listen to him describe the massive person and work of Jesus as it sits in history. Here's what he says. He says, when we look back upon history, what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has written of the rise and fall of great ones, the ebb and flow with that, that, that ebb and flow with the moon. I look back upon my own fellow countrymen, talking about um, England. Once upon a time, dominating a quarter of the world, most of them convinced in the words of what is still a popular song, that the God who made them mighty shall make them mightier yet. I have heard a crazed, cracked Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years, talking about Hitler. I have seen an Italian clown say he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power, talking about Mussolini. I've heard a, a murderous Gregorian brigand in the Kremlin, a claim by the intellectual elite of the world as wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, and more enlightened than Ashoka, talking about Stalin. I've seen America this is in the 1970s he's writing this. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than, the, uh, than anyone else on the world stage. So that if America, the American people so desired, they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the rage and scale of their conquest. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all of them gone. 
Gone with the wind, England, part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America, haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keep their motorways running and the smog settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victories of the media as they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all of them gone, gone with the wind. And here's the conclusion. Behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomats, there stands the gigantic figure of one because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind may still have peace, the person of Jesus Christ. And I present him as the way, the truth, and the life. That is who Jesus is in history. And that is who Matthew in the opening lines of the New Testament is trying to recalibrate our hearts around. This historical person, right, that that actually existed. This person that lies at the center of God's redemptive plan for the universe. And, And this person who towers over history, who stands as the most significant person that's ever lived. Matthew, opening lines of the New Testament, recalibrating our hearts around this massive person of Jesus. That's the first thing we learn, that that Jesus is at the center of history. But here's the second thing, and I love this one. It shows us, this genealogy shows us a gospel for every race. This is what it's about to show us, a gospel for every race. So let me just point out one ironic thing about this genealogy. The genealogy was written about a Jewish man. His name was Jesus. That's who the the genealogy revolves around. And it was written to a Jewish people. So Matthew's gospel was written primarily to a Jewish audience trying to convince them that Jesus actually is the Messiah. So it's about a Jewish man written to a Jewish audience. But here's the ironic thing. This genealogy has more than Jewish people in it. I mean, that's the crazy thing. It's not just a Jewish genealogy. So I want to point out just a few of these here for you. So just read along with me. So let's look at verse 3. Let, let me point out three of them here. Verse 3, here's one of them. Verse 3 says this, In Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. And you might just circle Tamar in there. Tamar was not an Israelite. She was not in the covenant community. She was not a part of the people of God. She was a Canaanite. That, that if you go back to Genesis 38, you'll see that, that Judah married into a Canaanite family, disobeying God, and she was brought in by Ur, this one of Judah's sons. So, so you've got uh, Tamar, a foreigner, who finds her way into the line of Jesus. So I just want to point that out, that she's not Jewish. She, she is from a different people. Then you look down at verse 5, and it says that uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And you might just circle Rahab. That, that uh, Rahab takes us all the way back to Joshua chapter 2, when the people of Israel are about to sack the city of Jericho. That, that Rahab, they sent spies into Jericho. Rahab housed those spies and hid those spies. And when the people of Israel sacked Jericho, they spared Rahab. And then Salmon, our man, married Rahab, had babies with Rahab, provided for Rahab, and there we get Boaz. So you see that Rahab was a foreigner, even an enemy of the people of Israel. So she was an enemy that was brought into the people of Israel and extended grace by the people of Israel. 
and that we find in the line of Jesus. And then look at 5b, second part of of verse 5. One more for you. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. You might circle Ruth. We've got one more foreigner. She was a Moabite. And the Moabites came about, they started, their origins go all the way back to Lot, sleeping with one of his own daughters, getting one of his own daughters pregnant. That's where the Moabites started. And the Moabites were bitter enemies against God's people. They didn't get along. We had some serious problems with the people of Israel and and the Moabites. And yet we have the story of Ruth happen. Do you remember how that story goes? You've got Naomi, one of her sons, marries Ruth. And, uh, and then the son dies. And so Ruth then follows Naomi back to the people of Israel. The people of Israel bring her in and Boaz provides for her, ends up marrying her and has babies with her. So I just want to point this out that in this line, we are seeing all sorts of people that are not in kind of the Jewish family here. They're not in the covenant community. That they were foreigners that were brought into the covenant community, into the line of Jesus. Okay, now I want to point that out because this genealogy is cluing us in and it's giving us a foretaste of the gospel. That the gospel is showing us a God that is not just about any one race, but is about all races. It's showing us a Jesus who did not just come to save people out of one group, people out of one race, but but he actually came for all races and for all people and all nations. That that we've got a Jesus that is a savior of everyone, every sort of people, every make and model of people. That it's not just a singular family that Jesus came for. That, That it is a Jesus who is after them all, every nation, tongue, and tribe. Okay, so in light of this, Uh, Because so many Christians have missed this idea, uh, just in Christian history, have missed the idea that God is actually for people, every race, every make and model, every nation, tongue, and tribe. I I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2, where we can just make this really clear, and I hope the Bible can be really compelling, as it shows you a Savior in Jesus that is out to rescue all people from every nation, from from every group of people, from every ethnicity, from from every race. So Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, now this is going to be up on the screen for you in a minute too, if you can't find it, so you can hang tight and it'll be there for you. But if you can go there, that's great. Ephesians 2. Now let me just pose the problem of Ephesians 2, uh, 11 and on for you. The problem is that Jews and Gentiles did not get along. They hated one another. This is the problem. The the, the Jewish people were given the law of God and were commissioned by God to be a light to the nations. But instead of being a light to the nations, the Jewish people with the law walled themselves off from the nations. This was the problem with the people of Israel. They weren't about being light. They were about walling themselves off, making sure that they're kind of protecting their own people. They were tribal. This is the problem with the people of Israel. And so this Jew-Gentile division was deep and it was dramatic and it was devastating in a lot of ways. Listen to one commentator try to describe kind of this division between Jew and Gentile. Here's what he said. He said, the Jew and Gentile had an immense contempt, or I'm sorry, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. Can we all agree that's a problem? We have got a bad problem between Jew and Gentile here. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he has made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. 
massive problems, sirens should be going off in all of our minds. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, the funeral of that Jewish boy was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Okay, this is the problem between Jew and Gentile. Now, it's even seen in how the temple was laid out. So, so here was kind of the structure of the temple. You had this inner court. It was called the, uh, the court of the priest, where the priests would do their thing. And then you had the court of Israel, where the Jewish men would do their thing. And then you had the court for the women, of the women, where the Jewish women, outside the, the, court, of the, the, the court of Israel, where the Jewish men were, the court of, for the women would be right outside that, where they could kind of do their thing. And then you would go down five steps, a platform, 14 steps, and then you would find a four-foot-tall wall that, that separated the outer courts. And this is where the Gentiles could roam. So, so it's like they had to like peer over the wall, up the steps, through the platform, up the, to get a glimpse of what God is doing with his people up here. Now on that wall read this inscription. On, on this wall of the outer court, separating these Gentiles out, said this, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Hence the division of Jew and Gentile, a deep division, all sorts of complexity in the middle of it. And here was the problem with our Jewish men and women. They were tribal. They had pride and prejudice and racism against other people, other ethnicities, other, other groups of people, of foreigners. Now, let's just take a second and stop here and, and just ask the question, maybe make the statement that we should not be so blind to think that that doesn't exist in us. This tribal nature, this let me get around me and my people and we'll kind of wall ourselves off and the world can, you know, kind of good luck to the rest of the world. That, that don't be so blind to think that doesn't exist in us in the room. And, and for some of us, it's color. For some of us, it's ethnicity. For some, we wall ourselves off based on education. Some of us, we wall ourselves off based on wealth and our status, our economic kind of status in the world. But, but don't be so foolish to think that that same sort of pride and prejudice and racism that we see in our Jewish people and even our Gentiles, don't, don't be so crazy to think that doesn't exist in this room right now. Now, I want you to see in Ephesians 2 what Paul says is the solution to this sort of pride and prejudice and racism. Here's what he says, starting in verse 11. He says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember. So in verse 11, it starts out with remember. In verse 12, it starts out with remember. The, the key is, if we want a solution to racism, it's going to be to remember. But the question is, remember what? What are we supposed to remember? Here's the answer, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he's saying, if you, if, if you want to get this 
pride and this prejudice and this racism eradicated from your heart, you've got to remember. And specifically, you've got to remember the gospel, all that God has done for you in Jesus. And he's telling you something specific here. You've got to remember where you were when God found you. And do you remember that? If you're a Christian in the room, do you remember where you were when God found you without hope in the world, without God in the world, strangers to the covenant of promise? That that's where God found you. He found you in a place where you could not help yourself, where you were in desperate need. And it's not until we remember that, where we were when God found us, it's not until we remember that, that pride and prejudice will be eradicated in us. See, because in front of the cross, we can all be distinct. Black, white, Hispanic, we can all be distinct. But in front of the cross, we are all deserving of eternal wrath from God. Now we see in that, He's saying, we better remember that. If you, if you want this, this threat of racism and pride and prejudice in you to be eradicated, you better remember that. That we can all be distinct, but in front of the cross, we are all deserving of the eternal wrath of God. Then he goes on. He says, for he himself, talking about Jesus, for he himself is our peace who has made us. We're talking us is Jew, Gentile, hate one another. Like we will basically write our son off if he goes that route. You're not welcome here. This sort of bitter division who has made us Jew and Gentile both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Man, I love that passage. Do you see what he's saying in verse 15 here? He's saying that, that, that here's what Jesus does on the cross. That he creates one new man in place of the two. In other words, he's saying this, that the bloodline of Jesus... Those that are redeemed, the bloodline of Jesus runs deeper than the bloodlines of race and ethnicity. Are we seeing that? That the bloodline of Jesus runs deeper than any sort of bloodline of ethnicity or family tree. It runs deeper than all of those things. He's saying that the power of the gospel alone is sufficient to root out in you pride and prejudice. The gospel alone has that sort of power to do that sort of a thing. And this is exactly what Matthew is showing us. Matthew is showing us in this genealogy that, that Jesus eradicates this idea of, of pride and prejudice based on our ethnicity. That Rahab gets the gospel. She's in the line of Jesus. That Tamar got the gospel. She gets grace. She's in the line of Jesus. This is what it's showing us. It's giving us a foretaste, Matthew is, of this great gospel reality that the bloodline of Jesus is deeper than any other bloodline you have. And listen, that's what we see in Revelation 7, isn't it? When it's giving us this picture of heaven. Do you remember the picture of heaven in Revelation 7? You've got this wave of saints praising Jesus. And you remember who those saints are made up of? Men and women of every nation, of every tongue, and every tribe. I, I said this last week, but for those of us in the room that are, that are prejudiced and are racist, we are going to hate heaven. Because it's going to have all of those in there. 
It's going to have all of those different ethnicities comprising it. And this is what Matthew is cluing us in here on the opening chapters of the New Testament. The opening verses of the New Testament is showing us that this gospel of grace goes to all races, all people. Now, let's just take a second to apply this to our church. I want to invite you to start praying for our church that God would make us a better reflection of gospel diversity. I want you to start praying that for us. That, that, and, and this is ethnicity. This is, this is color. This is education. This is wealth. That God would make us a beautiful reflection of gospel diversity. I, I heard a guy say recently that the most segregated place in our society is church on Sunday morning. And that shouldn't be. If you want to know one of the greatest gospel witnesses a church can give is for a person to walk in and for that person to see a multitude of ethnicities, all the spectrum of education, all the spectrum of wealth that make up that church. That is an incredible witness to the power of the gospel. Because when we start talking in terms of diversity in a church, here's, here's what the instant kind of impulse in me is. That's going to be so incredibly hard. Is that even possible? And here's all I can say about that is it was possible in the New Testament church. They had Jew and Gentile in that New Testament church. They had rich and poor in the New Testament church. They had educated and uneducated in the New Testament church. They had it all in the New Testament church. And they had it all because of the power of the gospel. That's why. And so if the gospel could make that back then, why couldn't it do that now? If the gospel could produce that in the first century church, why couldn't the gospel produce that at Stonegate Church? I mean, shouldn't there be something in us that kind of aches for that? That sort of gospel diversity to be a part of our church family? Okay, now, now let me, I don't want to let you off the hook here. Because as you're praying for our church to be a better reflection of gospel diversity, do you just take that one step further and know this, that you make up the church. You see in that, that, that you make it up. And so if we're going to pray for our church to be a better reflection of gospel diversity, it means that you have to be a better display of gospel diversity. See, if we want our church family to be comprised of diverse people, listen to this, it means your friendships have to be comprised of diverse people. And just lay that over your life for a second. Think about your inner circle. Think about the people you run with. How many of them look exactly like you, think pretty much like you, make about what you make, live about like you live, are educated about like you're educated. See, if if we're going to be a church that reflects gospel diversity, your friendships have to reflect that. And here's the great news of the gospel of grace. This is what this genealogy is announcing to us, that Jesus and his gospel is about every race. And so we as Stonegate Church want to be about every race, every nation, every tongue, every tribe. Amen? So that's the second thing we see. Here's the third thing we see. Number three is this genealogy shows us a gospel for notorious sinners. And aren't we grateful for that? that we have a gospel for notorious sinners. When you're thinking about this genealogy in Matthew 1, I think the best way for you to think about it is not so much as a genealogy, but more as a resume. This is how it functions in Matthew. That Matthew is presenting in, in, in Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17, a resume for Jesus that would qualify him for being the Messiah. 
The, the sent one, the promised one. That's what Matthew is doing in this genealogy. He's saying that here's Jesus' resume, and this is why he is the Messiah. Now, I, I want you to think about resumes for a second. Because when, when you create your resume, let's just be honest, you've never looked so good as you look on your resume, right? We all have a little bit of a tendency to embellish that resume to make, it look a, to make us look a little better in it than we really are. And we all have a tendency, if we can, to leave out those things that would diminish our, our image, right? We, we all have that tendency in us. But aren't we thankful for a Bible and for a God who doesn't leave out the blemishes? When you start looking at Jesus's family line, his family tree, here's what you're going to see. There's a lot of broken limbs in that tree. There's a lot of broken limbs. Let me, let me just walk you through a few of the broken limbs, the crooked limbs in the family tree of Jesus. And, and so maybe you could just start off the cuff by just saying, generally speaking on the service, you might could say that there is a group of people that would be like, really terrible. And then there's a group of people that you might kind of fit on the decent side of the ledger. So let me just start with a few of like the, wow, those people category. Um, in verse nine, we're introduced to Ahaz. Um, in verse 10, we're introduced to Manasseh. And the Bible presents both of those two as basically having no redeeming qualities about them. If you read their story, it is like pure corruption in story form in front of you. So, so that's their deal. But, but then you have people like Rahab in the line of Jesus, who the Bible says was a prostitute when the spies met her in Jericho. But then you could even come to the people that we might say fit on the decent side of the ledger. Like if you were making your resume, you would probably want Abraham, right? He's introduced in, in verse two. Abraham was the father of Isaac. You, you might want him as a reference on, on your resume, right? I mean, he would be kind of that person. I grew up singing songs about Father Abraham. I don't know if you grew up singing those, right? And so I, I, mean, I grew up with that view of Abraham. And listen, part of that's true. There was a moment in his life where he exercised incredible faith in God. But there is a huge but coming after that. And can I just tell you that every like lowercase hero in the Bible, your Abrahams, your Davids, all of these lo lowercase heroes, they all have a big but behind their name. Every one of them do. So yes, he exercised a great amount of faith, but this guy committed adultery on his wife, Abraham did. This guy two times was willing to give his wife to another man to save his own tail. That's Father Abraham. That's the one you're seeing the song about. Adulterer tried to give his, his wife twice to another man. That, that's Abraham. But, but it keeps going here. We, we could keep going. Maybe another guy that would fit on the good side of the ledger. How about our man Jacob, right? So you see him in verse two, um, that, that Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob's name says it all. His name means deceiver. This was a man that stole his brother's birthright. A, a, a thief, a liar. That, that's Jacob. Then you keep going here and you got the, the rest of verse two. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You've got our man Judah. If you want a picture of Judah, one of the patriarchs, one of like the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah, that Judah, if you want a picture of Judah, go to Genesis 37 and 38 and just start reading. In Genesis 37, here's what we find about Judah. He sold his brother in, into slavery. First, he plotted his death and then decided to sell him into slavery, right? That, that's our man Judah. Then you read Genesis 38, and it is like one of those, wow, I'm blushing a little bit as I'm reading it sort of chapters. In Genesis 38, you've got Judah who buys a prostitute, not knowing that the prostitute was his daughter-in-law and gets her pregnant. That Judah, 
So see, there's some redeeming things about Judah. You keep reading the story of Joseph. There's a couple of great moments with Judah, but there is a huge but that follows Judah. Amen? This is a man that was broken in deep ways. That's Judah. I mean, it is a crooked limb in Jesus' family tree. But then you go to verse six, and we've got one more here. Verse six says, And Jesse, the father of David, the king, so surely David would be like on the good side, right? This is the man after God's own heart. This is that David. So, so in part, yes, David is a, a little, like a, a lowercase hero of the Bible. In part, yes, he is that. But look at what that goes on to say here. So yes, he was the, the David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon. And then there's an interesting little five words that come after the name Solomon. By the wife of Uriah. Now, why in the world would it put by the wife of Uriah in this genealogy? It just kind of slides it in there. Why would it do that? Because Matthew is intentionally trying to remind you of a terrible episode in David's life. That this man after God's own heart, yes, but this was a man who sold his boy Uriah up a river. You you remember in this story? You remember who Uriah is? He's one of David's mighty men. One of these men that risked his life to protect David. But one day David was, was out on the roof of his palace and he sees Uriah's wife and decides, I want her. He brings her to the palace, commits adultery with her, and then in a premeditated plot murders Uriah. This is our man, David. This is our man after God's own heart. So yes, there's some redeeming things about David, but David is an adulterer and a murderer. That's our man, David. See, and this is what the genealogy is trying to show us, that there are all of these broken sticks, all of these broken limbs that make up the family of Jesus. See, if you read the Old Testament thinking, man, what the Old Testament is trying to tell me, what the story of Abraham is trying to tell me is, I need to be more like Abraham. That is not the primary point of the story of Abraham. The Old Testament is not a record of all of these great things that people did in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a record of God's pursuing grace that comes after broken sticks like Abraham, like David, like Judah. That's what the Old Testament is about. And what this genealogy is introducing us to is this redeeming grace of God that goes after even broken sticks like that. It's trying to recalibrate our heart around the gospel that is for notorious sinners. This genealogy is trying to show us that the gospel is not for put-together people because there are no put-together people, only those who pretend like it. Are you seeing that? The genealogy is trying to clue us into the fact that we are all notorious sinners, that behind every one of our lives is a but that reads much like David's, much like Judah's, much like Abraham's. Behind every one of our lives is that sort of a but. And the great news of the gospel that this genealogy is pointing us to is that the gospel is God's great mercy and great grace to those sort of notorious sinners, those sort of crooked sticks. Let me just kind of press this down for just a second. You know, there's an interesting passage in uh, Luke chapter 5 toward the end of the chapter where Jesus is trying to state his purpose for coming to the world. And here's what Jesus says. He says that, you know, I, I didn't come for the healthy. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick and for the sinners. That, that I'm, I'm not coming for the righteous. 
I'm coming for the unrighteous and the sinful who actually know that they're sinful and I'm going to be a great savior to them. It's just beautiful kind of picture of Jesus's purpose in the world. And in saying that, let me tell you what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying that there are some people who are really healthy and don't need a savior. He's not saying that there are some that are really righteous and are in no need of saving. That is not what Jesus is saying. He is saying that there are some people who are so sick in need of such great saving, but they can't see it. There are some people who are so unrighteous, crooked sticks, but they think that they are righteous. There are some people who are so sick, but they just can't see that they're dying of the disease. Do you see the picture? Now, if I were going to, to just maybe pronounce one thing over the suburban church world when it comes to the gospel, it might be this idea. That, that everyone is trying to be so put together that the gospel of grace means nothing to us. That the, we fit into the, so many of us fit into the category of the Pharisees who think that their life is so good that they actually don't even need saving who think that we've got it so together that we don't need a, a savior who will put it together for us. I, I love what one of my favorite pastors and authors says. He says, to become a Christian, the only thing, listen to this, the only thing you need is nothing, but so few people have it. To become a Christian, the only thing you need is nothing, but so few people have it. Everyone's wanting to kind of muster in their good works and trying to count in their good works. So it's Jesus plus these things. It's Jesus plus that thing. And what he's saying there is the prerequisite. And what Jesus is saying in Luke 5 is the prerequisite to being saved is knowing that you need to be saved. The prerequisite of a Savior being appealing to you is to know that you are in deep and desperate need of that Savior. Like, like the prerequisite to you taking the cure of the gospel is you knowing you are sick and dying of the disease of sin. And so few people know that. The only thing you need is nothing, but so few people have it. And I just, man, I just wonder, every time I preach in suburban world, and even at our church at Stonegate, I always have this little ache in my soul for the Pharisees in the room who have done all the right things all of their life, but just have missed Jesus. I've just missed Jesus. They just don't see themselves as the notorious sinner that's actually in need of great saving from a wonderful Savior. Just, just don't see it. Man, I just wonder if that could be true of any of us in the room this morning. We've got all the Bible verses memorized. We've got the Bible in hand. Do all the church stuff. A lot of good things. Moral, you know, raising good kids and just missing Jesus. This genealogy is reacclimating. One of the purposes of it, one of the things God is teaching us in it is that the gospel is for notorious sinners. It is for those who know they are notorious sinners. And lastly, and we'll kind of finish with this. Number four, the genealogy shows us a God who is faithful to keep every one of his promises. This genealogy, the primary point of this genealogy is to show us that God will make good on every promise he's made. Primary point of the genealogy. Um, an author, his name is Mark Dever, wrote a two-volume set 
uh, one on the Old Testament, one on the New Testament. And really it was a compilation of sermons that he did through every book of the Bible. So he did 66 uh, sermons, one over every book, trying to show how each individual book of the Bible fits into the larger storyline of the Bible. And when he, there's two volumes, one is on the Old Testament, one is on the New Testament. And I love his tagline to describe his Old Testament volume and what God is doing in the Old Testament. His tagline goes like this, Old Testament volume, larger story, how each book fits into it goes like this, promises made. That if you want to think about what the Old Testament is doing, it is God making all of these promises to his people. It's God making all of these promises of a coming redeemer, of one who will restore what's been torn asunder, one who would set right all that's been lost, one who would reclaim the paradise in Genesis 3 that we got kicked out of. It's all of these promises that God makes to his people. Now, I just want to give you two of these promises. And literally, we could spend several months going through Old Testament promises, but let me give you two of them. They're going to be up on the screen for you. Here's the first one. Made to Abraham. One of the most important three verses in the Old Testament is this promise. This is God to Abraham saying this in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 31. And will bless those who bless you and him who, who dishonors you, I will curse. And the last phrase here is massive. And in you, all the families or nations of the earth shall be blessed. Here's the promise. Abraham, there's going to be one come from you. And through that one, every nation, every person on planet earth is going to be blessed. That's the promise of God to Abraham. Okay, now uh, let me give you one more. This is a promise to David. And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's actually wrong on the screen. It says 1 Samuel, but it's 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 12, says this. This is God speaking to David. David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, key word here, forever. And I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from, who I put away from before you. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, key word, forever before me. Your throne will be established, here it is again, key word, forever. He's making a promise to David that there's going to be one that will come after you and he will set up a kingdom that will last for all eternity, forever. Now, I just want you to imagine yourself as a Jewish man or woman at the end of the, the Old Testament. You're in exile, right? So the, the nation of Israel has been dispersed and you're living in exile. And I want you to imagine all of these promises that God has made to you as you're in exile, what you would be feeling and thinking. The sort of doubt and discouragement and disappointment you would have in God. Like you would be thinking this, how in the world in light of us being in exile is God ever going to come through on this promise of one of us going to be a blessing to the nations? 
every family on earth. How in the world are we going to have a throne that's set up, that's going to last forever when we are being dominated by the Roman Empire? How in the world is that ever going to happen? It's impossible. There's no way that's going to happen. And then you get to Matthew 1.1. And by the way, I love what Mark Dever, how he uh, tags his New Testament volume. Old Testament promises made, New Testament promises kept. This is what the New Testament is about. It's about showing us that every one of God's promises made to us in the Old Testament have been kept in Jesus for you and I. This is what the New Testament is about. So we get to Genesis or Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and listen to the opening line of the New Testament. Listen to the first thing that Matthew wants to recalibrate the world around. This is what he says. Verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 1 of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Two key statements coming now. The son of David and the son of Abraham. The first verse in the New Testament is, is God saying to us in this genealogy that you know that one I promised to Abraham who's going to be a blessing for the entire world? Do you remember that promise I've made? Well, he's here. I have kept my promise to you. Do, you. do you remember that promise I made to David back in 2 Samuel 7? That, that there's going to be one that would come from him, one of his descendants, that I'm going to set on the throne and I'm going to establish that throne forever through all eternity. Matthew 1.1, that son has arrived and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom I'm going to bless the world. Jesus is the one that through whom I'm going to reign and rule and set up my kingdom in this world forever. Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for. I, the point of this genealogy, the point, the big overarching point is Matthew saying to you and I, God is faithful to his promises. That every promise he has ever made to you, he is promising you, living proof here, that he will be a God who is good for it. That, that he is a God who will cash every check that he's written to you. That he is a God who will fulfill every word that he has promised to you. And can I just say that there's a lot of us in the room who need to hear that today? That a lot of us in the room find ourselves in a really similar place where the people of God were at the end of the Old Testament. The voice of God has grown silent in our life. It doesn't seem like there's any way for God to come through and actually fulfill what he's promised to us. And let, let, let Matthew 1.1, this genealogy, be proof and evidence for you that God will come through, that God will make good on everything that he's promised. Amen? Let me close by saying this. You know, it's interesting when you think about this genealogy, that ultimately one of the things that this genealogy shows us is the line that leads to Jesus. It, it looks backwards and says, this is the family tree. This is all the crooked limbs. This is how it divides. This is, this is the line that leads to Jesus. But this genealogy ultimately points to the gospel. And you know what the gospel does? It invites us, offers us an invitation into the line that leads from Jesus. Amen? 
It invites us into the family of God. Not not the line that leads to Jesus, but the line that leads from Jesus. Like the gospel is the great news for you and I today that we can be adopted into the family of God because of what Jesus has done for us. That we can actually become sons and daughters of God and brothers with Jesus. That's what it promises you and I. That's what it invites us into. This beautiful gospel of grace says today that you can't sin so badly that you're beyond grace. You can't do it. It's this invitation for you to walk into the family of God through Jesus. So so maybe I could just finish with this question to you. Are you in the line that leads from Jesus? Are you in that line? Are you in that family line that leads from the cross into a million different places in the world today? Are you, are you in that family? And, and you say, how do you get in that family? It's really simple. That we trust and treasure Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus. So, so we trust that, that God is going to apply the work of Jesus to our account. That all of our sin will be credited to Jesus and Jesus' perfect righteousness will be credited to us. So, so faith in Jesus is saying, God, I trust you to apply Jesus to me, to cover my life with Jesus. I, I trust that I can be made right with you because of what Jesus has done for me. That, that's trusting Jesus. That's putting your faith in Jesus. It's trusting Jesus and it's treasuring Jesus above all things. See, what it means to be a Christian is that we love Jesus supremely in our life. That he is the thing that we're most affectionate for. The thing that we love supremely. And here's the great news of the gospel. When we hold up our hands and say, God, give me Jesus. I need help. The Bible loves to remind us that in that moment, God loves to extend mercy and grace. And God loves to save. God loves to adopt and bring in to his family. Amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a second to allow the Spirit of God to just imprint upon your soul the things that would be most helpful and applicable for you today and to wipe away the things that would not be helpful. And can I just tell you what would be a tragedy this Christmas? What would be a tragedy this Christmas? is for you to forsake God's best and supreme and most gracious gift to you, Jesus. For you to miss that. So so let me just ask you this just real plainly one more time. Are you in the line of Jesus? Like, are, are you a part of the redeemed race of men and women who have been rescued renewed, restored by Jesus. It's not a question of, do you go to church? It's not a question of, are you a pretty moral person? It's not a question of, do you read your Bible? It's a question of, have you tasted the grace of God made known to us in Jesus? Dad's in the room. If you're kicking the tires on what it means to be a Christian, can I just say the greatest gift you could give your family this Christmas is for you to give your life to Jesus, for God to save you, 
If you're a mom in the room, the greatest gift you could give your family is to hold up your hands and say, God, save me. If it, maybe you're single, a teenager, a son or daughter, that the greatest gift you could give your family today is for you to step across the line of faith, look up to God and say, God, I am in need of saving. I am the notorious sinner and I am so thankful for the great grace you have shown us in Jesus. Save me. And we very seldom end our services like this, but I just want to take a moment this morning. And if that's you today, if there's never been a moment where you have stepped across the line of faith and expressed to Jesus, save me. I need rescue. I need help. And that this is a day that you would want to do that. This is the day that you'd want to move into that and go that route. If, if, that's, if that's you in the room, like this would be the decisive moment in your life where you're saying, I need Jesus. God, save me. I just want you to make eye contact with me and look up. Anybody? Cool, man. Appreciate it. Anybody else? Just make eye contact with me. And if for the, for the guys that looked at me, here's what I want to make sure you do. One of two things. Either take one of those cards underneath your seat and make sure you fill it out and check the box that says um, how to establish a relationship with Jesus. And we will follow up with you ASAP this week. Or when we start singing here in a second, um, we're going to have some home group leaders on the side of the room. And I'd love for you to come over and uh, express to them what just happened in your heart so they can pray over you and, uh, and chat with you for a few minutes. And so, God, we are thankful for Jesus. And, God, we are thankful for what you show us about Jesus in this genealogy. That Jesus is at the center of history. He is historical. The most significant person that's ever lived towering over human history. That he is at the center of your redemptive work. That this Jesus is unavoidable. He's not going away. That every man and woman will one day find themselves before him. And God, we're thankful that in this gospel of grace that you show us, that in this gospel we see that it is for every race, that it is for the notoriously sinful, and God, we are thankful that we see in this genealogy a God, you, who are faithful to every promise. And God, I pray that right now that would make our hearts come alive to you. That it would make something deep in our souls stir that would want to worship you and sing to you and praise you. And it's in your great name we ask that. Amen. What Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.